Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines for movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. In this episode of Reinventing Solidarity, we turn to the contemporary crisis in American democracy. The question of who can vote and who ends up voting is a central feature of this crisis. In a landscape of defensive battles to protect the right to vote and Herculean efforts to turn out the vote comes a bold new book, 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. Written by Miles Rappaport and E.J. Dion, the book makes an argument that voting should be mandatory in the U.S., as it already is in 26 countries around the world. Hosting this discussion is School of Labor and Urban Studies distinguished lecturer, Heather McGee. She explores the case for requisite voting and its likely implications with author Miles Rappaport, former Connecticut Secretary of State and current Senior Practice Fellow in American Democracy at Harvard's Ash Center. Welcome, Miles Rappaport, to the Reinventing Solidarity podcast. How are you today? All right, I'm feeling great and eager to talk with you. Great. Well, first of all, congratulations on the book, 100% Democracy by the New Press is out now wherever books are sold. So Miles, I'd love to hear how this idea came to you. What is the backstory of how you ended up joining with E.J. Dion, the celebrated longtime journalist and Washington Post columnist, to write this book, 100% Democracy? You know, it's kind of a long story, actually, but I'll try to boil it down for you. You know, I have been, if you go back to my days in the Connecticut legislature and as secretary of the state, and then 13 wonderful years working with you at Demos and Common Cause, I've really been working on voting rights issues, democracy issues, process issues about how we make our democracy fully inclusive for almost 40 years. And I have been a real believer in these process reforms, whether it's same-day registration or restoring voting rights for people with felony convictions or pre-registration of 16 and 17-year-olds or early voting or mail-in voting, all of those things that people have worked on. I have been a total believer in them, and I think they have moved the needle. I do think if you look at the 2018 midterm turnouts and the 2020 presidential turnouts, both of them were record turnouts, 2018 at 50.3% and 2020 at 66.2%. So that's great. And I think the fact that people had more options to vote were a part of that. But the truth is, if you look at those percentages, it's nothing really to write home about. You know, it's lower than most of the other developed countries. So I sort of said to myself, after all this time of working on this and moving the needle and being believing in it, 
but really not moving the needle very much. Is there something that could really move the needle and really get us towards full participation? And around that time, I actually read a paper that E.J. Dion had written along with his colleague at the Brookings Institution, William Galston, which made the case for, they call it mandatory participation at the polls or Australian style universal civic duty voting. And I, when I read that, I had two reactions. One, I thought, this is really intriguing. You know, this really works. And, it's, and they talked about 26 countries altogether that utilize universal voting. But my second reaction, how is it possible that I have been working on these issues for almost 40 years and have never, not once, been in a conversation about a policy that has, in the case of Australia, 100 years of proof of concept. Mm. So I decided this is really something to dig into and uh, ended up in a conversation with EJ, which I'll continue in a moment. (laughs) That's great. And so for those who are listening who, like you, uh, before a few years ago, really have never had a conversation about Australian-style universal voting, can you just give us the high points? How does it work? The basic way it works, is, I think, is threefold. One, the government, the, the National Election Commission, and the political parties, and all of civil society organizations do a really energetic, really thorough job of letting people know about elections coming up, about how to cast their vote, and about their responsibility to vote. By the way, the law that says one is required to participate in elections passed in Australia in 1924. Mm-hmm. And turnout, by the way, in the in the in the Australian elections went from sixty percent to ninety percent overnight, and has stayed there ever since. So the first part is really getting the word out and making sure that people know. The second part is inquiring for people who did not cast a ballot why they didn't. So you get a letter in the mail saying, "How come you didn't vote if you didn't vote?" And it's it only goes to a relatively very small part of the population because they've had ninety six percent registration and 92% turnout in the last election. But then you give them, you have to send in an explanation. You know, I was visiting my grandmother in Perth or I I had a sick child at home or whatever it is. And almost any explanation is accepted. If none is given whatsoever, you get a basically, you get a $20 fine, which is about $15 US. And, you know, people have been paying it less than 1% of the population of the voting age population actually pays it. And so it's a kind of, I would call it a light touch enforcement. So that's the third. The idea is to create a a culture of participation rather than a culture of fining people. And it is actually also a celebratory culture. One of the things about Australia that they're famous for, which we talk about in the book. And by the way, thank you, Heather McGee, for writing the forward for the book. We are very appreciative of that. But they're famous for their democracy sausages, which is essentially- Democracy sausages? Is that, I mean, we have sausages in our democracy too. And that is called trying to negotiate with Joe Manchin to get a bill passed. We have a legislative sausage of bill making. What is this democracy sausage? Basically at all of the polling places, nonprofit organizations, sort of like a bake sale but they offer food for, to fund all the organizations and they have democracy sausages. Although of course, in our book, we propose a vegan alternatives should also be allowed. But people co- congregate, the elections are on a Saturday. And so, you know, it, it is a much more of a cultural phenomenon and a unifying cultural phenomenon rather than a polarizing one. Interesting. Yeah, I was really moved by the comment in the book that says voting is like a party, not only because I personally love parties, but I think we love parties. And there's an older book 
called In the Midst of Perpetual Fets by Michael Waldstriker, one of my professors at college. And he talked about how in the early formative years coming out of the Articles of the Confederation, you know, we had to figure out in this nation how to make ourselves feel like one country. And one of the ways that society did that was to just throw a bunch of festivals and parties all the time. And it really does feel like coming out of the pandemic, particularly a real flip around the sort of spirit around our democracy, not being something that feels, you know, almost like war, right? I mean, the sort of mainstreaming of political violence, the rhetoric, particularly coming from the right that says that, you know, we are in a pitched battle for control and the future of this country and everything is at stake. That's actually, you know, sort of bipartisan rhetoric. It would be amazing to feel like there was a cotton candy and and carnivals and music and and all of that. I'm thinking about how the Working Families Party on the East Coast would hire bands around the election this past fall. I think we do need some of that. So, So tell us some more about what it's like to vote under universal civic duty. Registration, is there early voting? Is there vote by mail? And then the other thing that really always irks me about our patchwork system is, let's say I happen to be on a business trip the day of voting. Can I, you know, three counties over? Or I happen to be, you know, dropping off my elderly neighbor at a doctor's appointment. Can I vote under universal civic duty voting in Australia in a different neighborhood? (laughs) (laughs) Or do I have to zoom back by the end of the polls? So what else is it like to vote under the system? Well, you know, Australia, as the United States has, although, as you say, we're at pitched battles and there are forces, very powerful forces determined to roll us back. But the voting options have expanded over time. So yes, Mm -hmm. there's a kind of universal mail-in voting that they have. They have early voting. There are vote centers where you can, in fact, vote in different precincts if you're in a different place. All of which we did in this country in 2020, which, you know, was dramatically helpful. You know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about being a listener here and and having a certain amount of skepticism that the United States could develop that kind of a positive culture given where we are. I mean, I think we are in a vicious downward spiral right now in this country in the sense that there isn't full participation. Many, many people don't participate or are excluded from participation. As a result, government is less responsive to those people. Many, many Many studies show that the government responsiveness, you know, is all towards more likely voters, not to mention the donor class itself. And then people withdraw further and it just gets worse and worse and more and more polarized. What I'm hoping is that we can create a kind of a virtuous cycle where you start with universal participation. And when people are participating, first of all, they get more information because right now, if you're not on the voter list, nobody calls you, nobody talks to you, nobody texts you. When I was running for the state legislature in Connecticut years back, I would go down the street with a list of voters and they would tell me, you know, just don't talk to anybody who's not on the list, even if they want to talk to you because they Mm -hmm. can't. Anyway, so with some more government responsiveness, I think you would get more satisfaction and then more participation. So that's what we're trying to create. I think it's possible. I think what we're trying to do here, look, we're not naive in the sense that we have a long way to go and there are threats to democracy that are powerful and frightening right now. But at the same time, we want to put this idea of universal participation out kind of as a North Star to say, in addition to fighting to preserve what we have, we also ought to dream a little bit and think about what it might be like to have a kind of universal participation in our political process. 
Well, let's talk about that dreaming a little bit. You did some polling and the polling is not great, right? 64% were opposed, 48% were strongly opposed in one of the polls. And, you know, there's sort of similarity across a bunch of different polls, but there were some bright spots. There were some parts of the population that were a little more open to it. You know, what do you think about that negative polling to what do you attribute it? And how do you think it can change and among whom? Well, E.J. Dion, who has been a, I should say, is a fabulous co-author and has been a wonderful partner in this effort. Going back to 2018, when we created a working group that was a joint Brookings Institution Ash Center working group that had 28 people on it, scholars, practitioners, lawyers, et cetera. And we really looked at all this. And one of the things that we did before coming out with our report, which was called Lift Every Voice, the Urgency of Universal Civic Duty Voting, was to take a poll. And what EJ likes to say is we're either the most honest authors or the dumbest because we put all the information about the poll in the book and the poll shows that only 26% of people actually support this idea, which doesn't daunt us in the least, by the way, because (laughs) on the one hand, this has never been discussed, as I said. So the people have not been presented with this idea. So the immediate reaction is, what are you kidding? That's not going to fly in the United States. And so Mm -hmm. the polling certainly reflected that. But the interesting part of the polling that I thought was that when people were asked the question of is voting a right or a duty or both, 61% of the people evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats, I might point out, said that voting is both a right and a duty. And I think that the holding of that value, that Mm -hmm. voting is, is a duty, I think is something that we build on, even though we have a long way to go up. So let's talk about what would change if there were universal civic duty voting in America. You've got experience running for office. You ran for you know state legislature in Connecticut. You served as secretary of state. So you were the head administrator in charge of elections. And you also ran for Congress. What do you think would change about the way campaigns are run? We talked a little bit about election administration. You could you know make all these changes that you have been fighting for for a long time to make it easier for people to do this newly required exercising of the franchise. But what would change about the way politicians and parties and consultants run campaigns, do you think? Let me say four things that I really think would change. And I'll end up with the exact question of how campaigns would change, because I think they really would. So one, we've talked about how the turnout overall would go up dramatically and immediately. But secondly, it would also be a far more reflective electorate than we have now. Right now, as you know, and as Demos has documented many, many times, the electorate is skewed towards older, whiter, richer, and more educated voters. And so It's a real problem for younger, you know, for the interests and the needs of younger voters, voters in communities of color, although in the African-American community, the voting has risen very, very dramatically and for, you know, lower income people in general. So I think what you want to have is a voting electorate that really reflects the population as a whole. So that's number two. Number three, I do think that all of the kind of institutions of society would bend themselves towards allowing people to make this. So I always like to say, if I were a principal of a high school and I knew that every one of my graduating seniors were going to be required to vote when they turn 18. Would I make sure that civic education was a more important part of the curriculum? I think I would. Even if I were an employer and I knew that all of my employees were legally required to vote, would that make me more likely, you know, to give them the time to participate? I think yes. So I think you can go on that. But here's the campaign response, which is right now, and I'm hearing Democratic Party consultants, and I'm sure this is happening in Republican circles as well, say this is a turnout election. 
is not a persuasion election. If we can just turn out our votes, we'll win. And so that is the task. So what happens is now is that, you know, elections are frenetic races to turn out your base. And in the worst case scenario, which we see time and time again, to depress or suppress the votes of your opponent or of the other party. Mm -hmm. This would change that incentive structure dramatically, because if you knew as a candidate that everybody was going to vote, then everybody is listening all the time. And your message can't just be to demonize your opponent and rage to engage your own base. You've got to make the case to all voters. And I think that would mean, A, a huge amount of money would be saved on all the get out the vote. If you think about all the work and effort and time and money that's spent on turning out the vote, that would be uh, you know obviated completely under this system. And that the currency would become persuasion of people who may be less ideological and less inclined to come out and vote. I think that'd be a healthy thing. So you have a commentator in the book who says that in Australia, because of this, elections are cheaper. They're sort of more efficient. I, I can see that argument. I can also see how having to reach, you know, 300 million people or 200 some million adults would potentially make elections more expensive. How do you, how do you think the evidence comes out or what's your instinct on that? You know, I think the, the way that the spending patterns would work would change. I don't actually think that this would automatically make elections cheaper and easier to do. So I don't think that elections would necessarily become much less expensive. Obviously, communicating to a large number of people through persuasion and through advertising, et cetera, is still going to take a fair amount of money. But I think that among grassroots organizations and among election officials, et cetera, much less effort on turning out the vote. I think it's important to make this point right now, which is that the idea of universal voting does not solve all the problems of our democracy. I mean, you mentioned about the money. This does not change you know, the influence of big money in our political system, which is you know, a horrendous part of what we currently have. It doesn't change the electoral college. It doesn't change the undemocratic nature of the U.S. Senate. So we're not offering this as a kind of a 19th century elixir. But on the lane, which is a big lane, the participation of people, which, as people have said, is the best antidote towards big money, is mm -hmm. full participation. I think this would be a huge difference. And I think it's really worth engaging in the conversation, which is what we're obviously trying to do with the book. So a few years ago, when I was still president of Demos, I think it was 2018, Demos and Move On collaborated on a video series. And one of the videos we did was called What If Everyone Voted? And it was, you know, an animated video and it, and it used Demos's research that looked at the significant class gap in voter turnout and voter registration. And if you look at the sort of big block of non-voters, their policy preferences are much more towards the kind of public goods, strong role for government, regulation of capital that, you know, would do a lot to address inequality. And so it was really about the potential for 100% democracy to make our economy more fair and more equal. Do you see that as a potential upside of this? And if that's the kind of dream, right, if this could help address our record inequality in this country, the fact that 1% of the population owns more wealth than the entire middle class, then who is, you know, are the sort of powers that be going to be completely arrayed against this because this would be too much of a threat to concentrated wealth and power? What are the stakes? Well, there's definitely, to answer your first question, I think there's definitely evidence in different countries that universal voting 
does in fact lead to more egalitarian policies because the policy preferences of everyone are taken into account. Whereas, you know, all the books that we've read show that the policy preference of low-income people in the United States is, has almost no impact on the decisions that are made by government. So yes, I think that would help. But an interesting point is that, you know, if you look at it, on the one hand, you know, lower educated voters and lower income voters, you know, have a lot more to benefit from different kinds of policy choices by government. But they also have shown themselves, especially in the last, you know, six years or so, to potentially be conservative voters, mm-hmm. particularly white and less educated voters. Mm -hmm. So that's an important point because we are not proposing this as a way of ensuring Democratic with a large D victories, because there is certainly significant evidence that when higher turnout comes and infrequent voters, white voters, you know, that benefits that has benefited Donald Trump, but has benefited the Republican Party. So you have to have a certain amount of small D Democratic faith to do this Mm -hmm. and to believe that in the end, an electorate that includes everyone will come up with better solutions. Well, let's talk about that faith in the American people. I think in 2018, as I said, you know, we, Demos was doing research about this. We did the video. I was 100% bought in. Even in 2021, when you asked me to do the forward, and I did, I was 100% bought in. And ultimately, I believe it's necessary and the right way to go. But to your point about it not being a silver bullet, you know, what's going on in our information ecosystem is pretty scary to me, right? We are talking right now, this conversation is happening a week after Elon Musk, a right-wing libertarian billionaire, bought one of our places of public commons and brought it private, Twitter. We are talking at a time when QAnon and other kinds of conspiracy theories, including the big lie, are believed by a huge chunk of the American population. And so, you know, the sort of elitist view was always, well, we don't want uninformed people to vote. You know, my view right now is what about the misinformation and how in 100% democracy can we address that problem? Well, this is a, you know, the information ecosystem challenge is a huge one, right? I mean, you know, the misinformation, disinformation and malinformation are sweeping over the country and the world. And I think that there's got to be a, a response by government. Frankly, the European governments are way ahead of the United States in trying to figure out how to deal with this. But I still think, I guess, that the people who are really absolutely unwilling to listen to different messages are still a, a significant minority of the population. And frankly, most of them have been voting because they are enraged to engage by the information system we have now and the information silos that we have created. So I have to have a little bit of faith Mm. that if you actually brought in everyone, including people who are not in this civil war atmosphere or Mm pre-civil war atmosphere. I also think, by the way, you know, there's this really great book called The Sum of Us, (laughs) you know, that talks about how the way in which race has been used in politics has divided people to everyone's detriment, including draining pools in the South when they were, but rather than integrate them. But I think if we work at that and we, you know, lift up trusted messengers and we work our hearts out to try to make sure that people are talking to each other and learning from each other and looking at our history, I think that we can have better results over time. Thank you, Miles. You know, that's a really interesting thought that hadn't occurred to me before. The idea that sort of your most radicalized and misinformed voters today are 
at least high attention voters, right? Because they are consuming an enormous amount of political media on social media and radio and cable news. And so it's people who are maybe a little less likely to have gotten onto Tucker Carlson's email listserv, right? Who are too busy in their lives, right? And for whom the barriers to voting have been successful at, at stopping them from voting, who would be pulled in? And this is this is an interesting way to think about sort of the attention that low, people who are not voting today have towards politics. You know, there's definitely evidence in the from other countries, from Australia, mm-hmm. but also from some other countries, that you know, when voters have a requirement to vote, they do in fact seek the information to allow them to do that in an informed way. And that's, you know, creating more informed voters. And I agree with the kind of implication of what you just said, which is it is certainly not true that the people who don't vote are more ignorant voters, more so than the people who are voting now. I really think that we want to have everyone in. But I also, I would say clearly, look, we have a huge fight on our hands, those of us who believe in democracy and those of us who believe in kind of a rational political system as a whole. So the people who are seeking now to suppress votes, to subvert election administration, to replace nonpartisan election officials with partisan operatives, you know, they have to be fought tooth and nail in the courts, in legislatures, you know, in campaigns, through mobilization, et cetera. So all that has to be done and all none of that can be short-circuited by dreaming for a better future. But I think what E.J. Dion and I have tried to do in the book is to say, let's assume for a moment that we can rescue our democracy from the clutches of those who would try to destroy it. Can we think about what a full democracy might look like and what advantages it might confer on, on us? So that brings me to the question about the Constitution. So we boast about our vaunted democracy in the U.S. Would having a totally representative and reflective democracy, 100% democracy, fit with a Constitution that was set up in many ways to without any real guarantees around voting and where the founders' vision of democracy did not include even white men without property. Is this constitutional? Yes, we believe it is. We had a group of really, really good lawyers, including a few from Demos with Demos credentials, who really looked at this and discovered some interesting things. One is that there is a body of Supreme Court decisions over a long period of time which prohibit compelled speech. So you can't force a student to say the Pledge of Allegiance in class or buy a license plate that says live free or die. But you can compel participation. So what we are recommending, what the design of a universal voting system is that people are required to participate, but they can cast a blank ballot. We actually recommend that there should be a none of the above option on ballots to make it crystal clear that you don't have to, if you don't like the candidates, if you don't like the choices that you're offered, you don't have to vote for any of them. So we think that this passes constitutional muster. There are many, many things that people are compelled to do, you know, have been compelled to do for a very long time. I mean, the most striking analogy in a way is jury duty. Mm -hmm. And it's a really important analogy because the reasoning is the same. I mean, the reason for, first of all, people had to fight in the civil rights movement for African-Americans to have the right to serve on juries. Yeah. Actually, technically the right to be compelled to serve on a jury. (laughs) But the reason we do that is because you want the decisions about people's guilt or innocence and the appropriate punishment to be made by a fully reflective 
jury pool. I think the same thing applies to the voting pool. We want the decisions, or we should want the decisions that are made about the laws that govern all of our lives and the decisions that affect all of our lives and the people who are going to make those decisions to be selected by a fully reflective pool. So interestingly enough, people do ask us whether we could do an incentive-based system as opposed to a, you know, having a fine. A, that might, might actually run afoul of more legislative and judicial precedent than the compulsion, because in the Voting Rights Act, it says you can't pay anybody to participate. And so that obviously is clearly directed at not bribing people to vote for your candidate, but it could be construed to apply to, you know, an incentive-based system. So we think that this system is the system that we're proposing, passes constitutional muster and will work. Speaking of will work, congratulations are in order because the book includes a model bill. You could tell an organizer wrote this book or co-authored this book that said, don't have to stay in the ether here and in the academy. You can just use this model to actually introduce legislation. And a few weeks ago, there was something to celebrate. Tell us about it, Miles. Well, just two weeks ago, really, we had an event at the old state house in Hartford, which is where, of course, I was the secretary, served as secretary of the state in the same building where the Amistad trial took place in 1839. Quite amazing. But Congressman John Larson, who is the congressman from the Hartford area, who's been in Congress for 24 years, came to the event, had read the book had seen EJ and me on Morning Joe one morning and said that he wanted to file a bill. And in fact, he was filing it that very day. So there now is a federal bill. It is H.R. 7536. And the title currently is the Civic Duty to Vote Act. And what it does is take all of the recommendations from the book and turn it into a piece of legislation, which they had the drafting office for the House of Representatives do. And so there is a bill. People can go look it up. Congressman Larson is working on getting more co-sponsors now as we speak. And so we're happy about that. However, I mean, hard to imagine this bill passing very quickly when we yeah, couldn't it's... get the John, John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act or the Freedom to Vote Act passed. But what we really hope is that states or even municipalities will take this up, take seriously their role as laboratories of democracy, and that once this starts to be talked about. And so having a federal bill, needless to say, helps in the legitimizing, in a way, of the conversation about this, for sure. That's great. And so... In the back of the book, in the appendix, is a model bill. So you tell us a little bit about the story about that and who Senator Will Haspel? Yes. I'll channel E.J. Dion here to say that we were delighted that Senator Will Haskell, who was elected to the Connecticut State Senate at the age of 22 and who was a former student of that same E.J. Dion at Georgetown, submitted a bill on his own, unbeknownst to us, to have voting be a requirement of citizenship starting in the 2024 elections in Connecticut. This was in the middle of COVID. This was in 2021. So there wasn't an opportunity for a public hearing on it, but it has been submitted. And also there's also a similar bill in the Massachusetts legislature. An interesting little point in Massachusetts is that in 1919, there was an amendment passed to the constitution of the state of Massachusetts which explicitly authorized the general court, i.e. the legislature in Massachusetts, to adopt compulsory voting as long as secret voting was maintained. Mm -hmm. And that's still on the books. That is still in the Massachusetts Constitution. And there's some history in Kansas City and some other places where this has been tried. Actually, let me just say, uh, speaking of, of where this has been tried, in addition to Australia, which we've talked about a lot, there are 25 other countries where 
universal voting is used in a variety of different ways with a variety of different mechanisms. Uh, a number of them are in Latin America. So Argentina, Brazil, um, Ecuador, Peru, Uruguay, all have versions of universal voting. And, you know, obviously, uh, you know, any, any country, no country is per has a perfect democracy. So we're not selling this as the uh, example. And in Chile, which is very interesting, they had universal voting until 2012 when it was eliminated, but they're now engaged in a, in a process of writing a new constitution. And most people are saying that the new constitution will include universal civic duty voting. So, Miles, um, in closing here, I've really enjoyed this conversation. You know, obviously you and I have been comrades for all of my career. You were the president of Demos when I was hired as an entry-level staffer when I was 22 years old. You were the one who convinced me to throw my hat in the ring to succeed you. You've been a friend and a champion. I've learned so much from you. I was absolutely delighted to write the forward to 100% democracy, partly because I believe that 100% democracy could further the cause that I'm currently most focused on, which is increasing our sense of solidarity in our society, seeing that as a sort of essential bedrock for every other part of living in a functioning society. How do you see it, given the name of this conversation? How do you see the relationship between 100% democracy and kind of how we feel about each other, how much we trust one another? I think it's really an interesting question. And I, my hope is that if there is one more universally shared experience that is voting, and if the country does, or the states that do it, or the country does it, operates it well, which is welcoming people into the process, making it easy for people to vote, having well-funded and competent election administration, you know, that you, you start to have, instead of the kind of bitter cynicism that we have now, making it into more of a shared experience. And I think if that happens, and you have some of the celebratory culture built in, maybe that starts to overcome it. As I say, I don't want to oversell what this idea can do. We are a divided society. But you know what? There are lots and lots of places that you, you know, write about in the book where people are, in fact, overcoming the divides that have kept us apart and figuring out ways to find the solidarity dividend that you so eloquently talk about in your book. And I'm hoping that this will, you know, encourage that. So yes. we're, we're hoping to make our small contribution to the idea of solidarity and to the idea of equality. And again, to start that virtuous cycle a fuller participation, gets more responsive policies, gets more interest in the process as a whole. And also where people are invited in, they're required in, but they're also invited in, in a very energetic and hopeful way. So that's our hope. We're certainly, by the way, Heather, going to kind of continue to work on the issue. Writing of a book is the beginning, not the end. And we're hoping that we can, you know, get a little bit of a movement going to get this policy discussed in policy circles, discussed in the democracy movement, and discussed in legislative circles as well. So stay tuned. We're going to try to keep doing that over the years ahead. Thank you so much, Miles. Well, Heather, thank you for having me. It's a delight to talk to you as it has been a delight to work with you for so many years. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu to learn more about the podcast and listen to 
other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu. Thank you.